As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to your word and pray that you would help us as we think upon it and as we come to your table. I pray that we have been readied by all that we've prayed and all that we've sung. We've been readied by your spirit who has drawn us to you. We trust. We've been readied by confession of sin because now we know that we have confidence before you. And so now please we pray that you would speak to us in a way that we can hear and understand and believe. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Thessalonians, please, in chapter 3. I want to begin reading with verse 5 and read to verse 15. Second Thessalonians in chapter 3, please. For most of our translations, verse 5 comes at the end of a paragraph, but I want to pull it out of that and put it in the next one, if I might. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5, the Word of God. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you Uh, in ourselves an example to imitate. For when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, from this passage I get this question. How are we to stand firm in the faith and hold to the traditions the apostles have given to us, that is, how we to stand firm in the faith and hold to the scripture, to the word of God, when there are those among us who aren't. The question I get from this is, how are we to hold to the scripture, to live steadfast, if you will, in faith, when there are those among us who aren't, Now that question then gets divided. One, how do those who aren't living according to the traditions handed down to us by the apostles, that is the word of God, how do those who aren't come back to it? And then secondly, how do those who 
are presently holding to it continue to do that. Does that make sense? You may not know how I got there yet. I'll tell you in a minute. But the questions make sense. You see where I'm, I'm headed with this. Now, I start that way because sometimes Karen and I, we realize in our conversation to each other, we'll make a statement, the other will look at us quizzically, and then we'll have to say, oh, let me tell you how I got there, right? Um, And so let me tell you how I got there. I got there by first realizing the purpose for which uh, Paul's writing to this church. He's written them two letters, and I, I think that his purpose for writing them is really summed up in this second letter, chapter 2, verse 15. We've seen it before. He writes, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. I mean, that's, that's his desire for them. His prayers are centered around their being steadfast, their being persevering, their holding to the teaching of the scripture, to their being sanctified, all of that. You see, yeah, both letters, he's writing, Writing to them concerning that he founded the church, he left them, he heard some things, he writes back, he's concerned that perhaps they aren't persevering in the faith, and so he's trying to help them through these letters do that. Now in this second letter, what we see is that he's helping them by both word and prayer, always together we've said. By both word and prayer. So in the first chapter he says, now there might be something that's impeding you from persevering, from being steadfast, from holding firm to the teachings that I've given you. And the first thing he mentions in that very first chapter is persecution. The persecution has come to them. And he says, this may be a problem for you. This may discourage you. In your perseverance. It was a problem as he wrote to them in the first letter. It was a problem when he was with them. That they were persecuted almost from the get go. And so he writes to them in chapter 1. Essentially to say. Now remember always that God does indeed care for you. And that God is just. That is to say a day will come. When those who are persecuting you. Will be paid back. And a day will come. When you'll see the glory of Christ. When you'll marvel at him. And at that moment in time, trust me, you'll realize that all of this was worth it. That whatever the present suffering is, it isn't worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. So, hang on. And in the midst of that, you remember, he prayed for them. Remember his prayer at the end of of chapter 1. He says, to this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power. He's saying, he says, Continue on, continue to persevere, continue to live this out, to continue to hold fast, to continue to be steadfast, to continue to do good, that is to love one another and all of that. Knowing that God will enable you and he'll bless every effort by faith through his power. So that, he says, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then chapter 2 comes. And he says, now there is another thing in in the community there that perhaps is keeping you or discouraging you from persevering. And that is there's some false teaching going around. And anytime we imbibe in false teaching, it can hurt our walk with the Lord. Obviously, keep us from being steadfast, holding firm, all of that. And so Paul then dismantles that false teaching. The false teaching was... That Christ had already returned. He says, no, 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 no. He hasn't. 
He hasn't. But know this, that when he does, he'll destroy evil. So continue to hold on in the midst of the difficulties that you find. He'll destroy all of this evil when he comes. And then he prays this prayer at the end of chapter 2, verse 16. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And that is to say, keep on. Don't let this false teaching discourage you. Uh, Don't let the fact that Christ hasn't come in all of his fullness yet discourage you. Continue on. Know that when he does come, he'll destroy evil. All will be well. Till then, continue on to do that which is good. To continue to live after him. And then he even says in chapter 3, opening, says, here's I want something for you to pray for. I trust you've been praying it. He says, pray that this word, this message of the gospel, that this word will spread rapidly and be honored. We said that it would run and be glorified. I hope you're praying that. I hope you, if you haven't already started from last Sunday, I hope that's written down somewhere where you pray. Through us, that the word of God would spread rapidly. Some of you might remember this. But together as a church, we prayed that prayer for about a year in the mid-90s. We just did. In fact, some of you may still have the little bookmarks and all those little things that we did back then to help remind you to pray that prayer. I can tell you, coincidentally, that during that time, our church doubled in size. Why we stopped praying it as a church, I don't know. Maybe we got filled up. But whatever it is, I hope you're praying that we need as a community, not just Grace EPC, but Lawrence, Kansas, and the world, we need the word of God to run and to be glorified, to be honored, to be believed in, to be said, this is the word of God, and I trust it. So let's again commit, not so that our church will double in size per se, but that the word of God will will run and be glorified. So that was there. And he says, these things, this persecution, false teaching, keep the word of God from running and from really being glorified, really being believed, really being honored. And now he says, there's something else as well. There's something that we need to deal with, he says, in the church in Thessalonica. There are some in our midst who are not holding to the traditions that we have laid down. He calls them the idol. You'll notice in verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now, Paul had already spoken of them in the first letter. There were those who were idle. Now, when we think of idle, we think of those not working, and that was true. But this word idleness is, is richer than that, deeper than that. It, it doesn't simply mean that they weren't working. They weren't. But, but it means that they were unruly, that they were disobedient, that they were rebellious against the word. You see, it isn't that they couldn't work, and it isn't that there wasn't work. It was simply that they didn't want to or didn't think they needed to. 
Now in the first letter, what, what got Paul's rankles up a bit about them is that in his view, that was an unloving lifestyle. It was unloving because if you're not working and you're depending on others to care for you, if you're not working when you otherwise could work, then you're being a burden to people. Now there are some who can't work. There are some who can't work because there are physical or other limitations for them that impede their working. There are others who can't work at certain times and and in certain economies and so forth and so on because there isn't work. And we understand all of that. And those people are deserving, really, of our help. We have, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, a real loving obligation to help in those cases. But this wasn't that at all. These were people for whatever reason. Maybe it was the bad teaching. Maybe they thought that the kingdom of God had come and it was unspiritual to work, that God would just simply provide and therefore they didn't have to work. It may be that they thought that the return of Christ had happened and therefore whatever would take place now on this earth would just burn. It would just be worthless. And so, so why work? I mean, why not evangelize? Why not do something more productive, more spiritually uh, uh, significant than just working, if you will, to, to, to get bread and to get food. Or, or perhaps it was because in, 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 in this culture there was a certain patronage system that allowed some not to work and others to take care of them as part of their privilege and prestige and all of that. And some Christians perhaps had bought into that system. And, and Paul said, no, that's not right. Well, whatever the reason, he said there were those who were idle. But, but they weren't simply idle, you see. It isn't that they were just simply uh, not working, but they were using their time even improperly, as he puts it. They weren't busy with work, but they were busy bodies. They were meddlers. They were getting into things that they ought not get into and, and distracting the whole community, if you will. And the difficulty with that is that that was hurting the very witness of the church. It was unloving. They were being a burden. Those on the outside would look in and say, is this what following Jesus means? That you stop working and then sort of sponge off of everyone else? Is is that really what this means? And not only that, and Paul doesn't go into all of these details. We did a couple of months ago, so I won't do it again. But all of these details that says that, you know, work is a good thing. Work is one of the ways that we image God. If you go all the way back to creation, we realize that that we were created, God said, and part of the image of God in us is to work as he worked. Part of the image of God in us is to cultivate the earth. Part of the image of God in us as stewards of the earth is to work it. And thus work is a good thing. The commandment that says six days you shall work and one day you shall rest isn't simply to tell us to rest one day. It's to tell us to work six in some way, shape, or form. To be active those six days providing and cultivating, having dominion over the earth, stewarding over it. You see, that's a good thing. Work in and of itself, at least work that isn't sinful work, is good work. It's godly And you see, to not work when you can work is to disgrace the image of God. So Paul says all of this, you see, is is there. And so we're to work. So then the question is, how is it that those who are not working, 
that those who are the idle ones, that those who are unruly, that those who are uh, disobedient, that are rebellious against this word, how are they brought back, you see? How are they brought back? And notice how Paul puts it. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. So there he says, that we're to keep away from them. Then notice too, verse 12 he says, or verse 10, he says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, again, not willing to work, otherwise able to work, there is work, just simply refusing to work, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So you get the sense that Paul is saying to them, stay away from them, and don't feed them. Don't help them. And then he says directly to them, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. And then in verse 14 he says, if anyone doesn't obey whatever we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. So that's the reaction, not of the leaders of the church per se, but of the community of the church. Now that's shocking to us, isn't it? And we want to say, what does that really mean? How do we really play that out? Do we really play that out? Have we ever played that out? Now, to think about this, let's, let's kind of think, first of all, this. This was a situation that was happening in a particular church at a particular time, in a particular culture, at a particular point in history. And in a particular point in the history of the church. I mean, so Paul is writing to this new church, this new thing. And so in some sense, we have to allow for that. We say, okay, this is happening right there. These words would mean something in particular. They knew these people. And, and, and they could have a sense about what was what Paul was saying and how that would work out in the context of their community. It's hard for us to see that. In fact, it's hard for us to see how that would work out in the context of our own community. Now we know in the history of the church there is this practice called shunning and we read about that and it's almost always negative. And the reason it's almost always negative is because those who are being shunned in a particular church or stayed away from or any of that are normally shunned not so much because of dishonoring God, but dishonoring the church in some way, and some church rule in some way. And so it's often, we often wonder why this dramatic response in that situation. Plus, we need to realize this, that this had been going on for quite some time. And this was systemic in the church. This was part of the, the lives of certain people in the context of the church. Paul had already written to them once about this. And he had already told the church leadership, really, and the church, that they were to admonish the idol. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. That they were to admonish the idol. So he'd already dealt with this. Not only that, he probably talked about it when he was there the first time, when he was there with them just for that brief period of time. In fact, he modeled for them how they ought to live. And one of the amazing things about the Apostle Paul and current missionaries, missionary strategy, in fact, the missionary strategy uh, for a long time has taken this up, and that is when a person goes into a new community as a missionary, they don't expect 
that new church to support them. And Paul said, I have a right to support. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He works his way through that. He said, the other apostles, they're receiving support. But Paul says, I'd rather not. I'd rather make my own way. And the reason is various for him. One is he wanted to model for them how it is that they're to live. How else do you do that? In a community where that may be unknown, in a community where there may be a bias against it, he says, no, 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 working with your hands, doing this hard work so that you can provide for yourself is a good thing when you can. So Paul, even with his other other responsibilities, we know, uh, was, uh, was a leather worker, was a tent maker. And so he worked hard and he said, I showed you that. And that's a good thing. I tried to teach you that. And I mentioned it, how far deeply he went into the whole creation ordinance of work and, and, and how it is that God has made us and all we don't know. But, but clearly that would be part of Paul's tradition, part of his understanding from the scripture. He knew the image of God. He knew what God had called us to do and to be. And all of that was good. And so, so all of that was set up and very, very clear, very distinct fashion. So, so there'd be no question about this, that this was true. And he had, he had warned them. He had written to them. Uh, the church had been working on this as well. And so by the time it comes to the second letter, what's that, a year later perhaps? I don't know. Since it come, the second letter comes out, it's still happening. It's still in the church. It's still there. And Paul realizes that this is hurting the witness so the gospel can't run. And this was systemic in the church. It might distract others from their own work. It might cause others to stumble. It was, it was a blatant offense, you see. It would destroy the church if everyone bought into this. Who would feed whom if no one was working? Who would image God if no one was working? Who would love the other if no one was working? I mean, really. And he said, this is really, really, really significant. And so you, you, you need to deal with this in this community. So what does he say? Keep away from them. What does he say? He says, I have nothing to do with him. Now what does that really mean? In one sense, we're not quite sure. It could simply mean, and most likely begins here, that don't have anything to do with him in such a way that would condone his behavior. Don't have anything to do with him in such a way that would show others that you think the way he's living is right. Uh, don't have anything to do with him in such a way that, that, that you yourself could fall into it. Don't, don't have anything to do with him in such a way that enables him to continue in this lifestyle. But, but you'll notice that Paul's very uh, clear to say, verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him, really, as a brother, he says, this isn't an outcast. This isn't something you're casting when you're excommunicating, if you will. But this is someone that you're warning as a brother. You, you desire for him to change his ways, to see the air of his ways. You've told him again and again and again. You've shown him again and again and again. He continues not to listen. And so now what do we do? 
You see, there is in the church this disciplining that we do with one another in the context of relationships. You know, one of the questions that I often get as a pastor is, have you ever excommunicated anybody? Right? I don't know why people want to know that question. I only answer this. I said, yes. They said, for what? I said, for asking me if I ever excommunicated anyone. That's, that's my one bit of excommunication. And I always say, I don't want to excommunicate anybody. That's not the purpose of discipline. The purpose of discipline isn't to see how quickly we can get to excommunication. That isn't it at all. The purpose of training discipline, that's what the word means, just like with our children. The, 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 the discipline is to, to grow up and to strengthen in faith, to bring to repentance and, and to restore and all of that. In fact, that was really, you can feel it in, in the words of Jesus in Matthew. And uh, Matthew in chapter 18, uh, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. I mean, can't you just feel in that statement Jesus saying, here, do this. You see, make sure that if you see someone sinning even against you, that you go to them and, and you're restored, you see. That's the hope there. Uh, if he doesn't, listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church and then to the church and treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector that is ultimately like an enemy. That's the excommunication part. But Jesus is saying, listen, there is a discipline in ourselves that says when there's real sin that we need to hold one another accountable. And that's a good thing. There's a sense in which Paul said, we did that. We did that through our teaching. We did that through our example. And no one listened. Now what do we do? Well, here's what you have to do. Just don't condone their behavior. Stay away from them. Whatever that means. No intimate fellowship, if you will. Stay away from them. In the sense of being then ashamed we say, I don't like that. I don't want someone to feel ashamed. And, and we say, no, no, no. This isn't bad ashamed. There's some bad ashamed, some feelings that we shouldn't be ashamed of. Sometimes we can be ashamed when we don't meet the standards of some other person. We can be ashamed when we don't meet our own standards at times. But the Bible speaks of being ashamed. Only when God is dishonored. If he's really dishonored. Sometimes I might not meet your standards. You might not meet my standards. I might not meet my own standards. God hasn't been dishonored in any of that. There's no need for it. But there's what some theologians call well-placed shame. To be ashamed of that which dishonors God. And you see, when that happens, the hope is, then there is repentance. We come back to him to be reconciled to him. And that being ashamed is lifted when we realize that Christ has died for our sins and that God loves us and that we belong to him. And, and then you see, it can be over. And he says, so what I want this person to see now, because they haven't listened to anything else. Now I want you to see. 
I want them to see uh, in stark contrast to the way that you believe and you live I want them to see that in fact they're living disobediently so that they'll repent and so Paul says that's the desire of it really so you say well then give me some examples give me a list of situations where we should do this no no I'm not going to do that um for a number of reasons. First, because it's, there are all kinds of situations where this could come about, but first, we have to be convinced that the person understands. First, we have to be convinced that it's been clear. First, we have to be convinced that it's a clear disobedience of Scripture. And then we have to be clear that we've lived it and modeled it and spoken it well and, and, and admonished them enough if you will and and then maybe we can talk about how to do this so if you're at that place with someone come and we'll talk about how to do that but it would only be confusing if I tried to lay out particulars here but there's something here even for those who are living obediently verse 13 he says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Now there's words, he says, listen, here's one of the difficulties. One of the difficulties is that you can get worn out. You can get worn out in the midst of this community doing good. Paul says, I know I've prayed for you over and over again that you'd do good, but, but trust me, you can get weary in doing good In fact, these idle ones can make you weary. Now, please understand, we know this, that weary, at least in the scripture, is different than tired. Tired is something that should happen to us every night. Right? Tired is something that we should feel every night. Some of you feel it at eight in the evening. Some may not feel it until midnight, however your little clock is. But we should feel tired once a day. And that tiredness should be cured by a good night's sleep. So we wake up the next day not tired. Weariness can cause us to feel tired, but it's not corrected by a good night's sleep. And we can get weary in doing that which is good. Now sometimes we get weary doing that which is good because we know this, we're doing it for the wrong reasons and we're not getting enough affirmation and so we get weary doing, doing good, that sinfulness. One theologian by the name of Calvin puts it like this. He says, this precept, doing good, not becoming weary and well-doing, is especially necessary because we're naturally lazy. You notice I always quote people when I want to say that. Um, I'm naturally lazy, he says. This precept is especially necessary because we're naturally lazy in the duties of love and many little stumbling blocks hinder and put off even the well-disposed. We meet many, many ungrateful people. The vast number of needy overwhelms us. We're drained by paying out on every side. Our warmth is chilled by the coldness of others. That can happen. We do that which is good and people aren't always grateful. Costs us a lot. 
takes a lot of energy and time. And because of our sinfulness, we can become, we can become weary. Another puts it like this. He says, well-doing required continues, well-doing requires continued effort, constant toil. But human nature, being fond of ease, lacks staying power. It's easily discouraged. This is especially true when results are not always apparent at once, when those who should help refuse to cooperate, and when no reward seems ever to be coming our way. We, we know that. We know that over time, we know the symptoms of, of, of certain kinds of weariness. Why isn't anyone else helping? Why am I the only one doing this? Does anybody really care? Am I really helping? I mean, there's so much need in just me. And so can I really even make a dent in this? And after a while, doing well, doing that which is good, can become wearisome, even burdensome. Even with the idol, how do, how do you keep this up? How do you keep up not talking to these people who are your brothers perhaps, or not, or not having intimate fellowship with them, or avoiding them in certain situations that you'd rather be with them in, and you've historically been with them, and, and how do you keep that up over time if nothing changes? How do, you, how do you really do that? Don't you become weary after a while that can't you ultimately give in? And then, and then won't you say after a while, why should I keep working when they're not working and they seem to be doing fine? Why should I keep X, Y, or Z? when they're not X, Y, or Z and they seem to be doing fine. Why should I live my life this way when they're not and they seem to be happy? And so the weariness, you see, of continuing on with that. And he says, don't get weary. Don't get discouraged by these who are taking advantage uh, whom you shouldn't help. Uh, don't become weary by them and then miss out on helping all the people you ought to help. There's, there's people out there who need help and should be helped and so go help them. Don't become weary. And all of that. So the question is, how is it that we keep from becoming weary? Well, Paul addresses this. You might remember and your heads might be going to this if you're a reader of Scripture to Galatians in chapter 6. Verse 9, Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not Give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially, particularly, he would say, to those who are the household of faith. He says, don't grow weary. Why not? What keeps us? He says, well, I'll give you a promise. In due season, we'll reap. Now, what will we reap? He doesn't say. Could I, though, give a suggestion as to what it is that we might reap? I think this. That in due season, what we'll reap is what Jesus reaped, and that is joy. Don't become weary. Joy is coming. Now he says in due season, that is, in the fullness of time, in God's time, a day will come when you'll see it and you'll be filled with joy. Listen to these words concerning Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Remember Paul's prayer that started all of this. He said, may Jesus, may the Lord, may Jesus direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't you think that if anybody had the right to become faint-hearted, it was Jesus? Has anyone else done that which is good under more opposition? And so you see, we're called to do that which is good. And yes, there is opposition. Yes, there is difficulty. Yes, there is discouragement. Yet there are those who discourage us in doing good. But, but, but yet, he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Keep it up. Keep going with it. Don't become discouraged. And you say, well, how can I? Look at this and look at that and look at this and look at that. And, and, and then they say, no, don't look at this and don't look at that. Look at Jesus. Is there anybody else who did more good under more opposition than Jesus? And what was his motivation? Joy. It was for the joy that was said before him. What was his joy? Well, his joy in doing good was that he would please his father. You know that great parable, parable of the talents. You know what the reward is. Uh, You get bigger kingdoms and all that. But at the end of the day, God says to him, well done, my good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. You know how it is sometimes you get affirmed by people you don't care about and it doesn't really help you? You just go, you don't respect them, and you go, ah, they think that was good, but what do they know? But then have you ever been affirmed by someone you really respect? Whose opinion you really value? What's it do? Well done, my good and faithful servants. You've made me really happy. Enter in to the joy of your master. And Jesus knew that joy. He was able to sustain doing good all the way to the cross doing good against all the opposition all the way to the cross because he knew the joy of his father. And he knew the joy of saving us, expressing the very love of God. So then, the way that we persevere 
in the midst of a community where not everybody is holding to the scriptures is by looking to Jesus, considering him, and continuing to do good. The night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body. There's absolutely nothing that will deter me from giving it for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat of this bread, drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death. Until he comes, we declare the good that he did by pleasing his Father and saving sinners. And as we remember him, as we consider him, as we're directed to him, we see his steadfastness. And he said it was for the joy. He says, keep up. And we said, why? And he said, oh, for the joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us. That you would enable us to remain steadfast. That you would enable us to continue to hold to that which you've taught us in the scripture. That you would continue to keep us standing firm. That you would cause nothing to deter us. That you would enable us, by faith in Jesus, to continue to do that which is good and not become weary. That you would focus our attention, that you would direct us to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So now at this table we pray that the focus of our attention would be on the presence of our Lord Jesus, this very one who is as close to us as this bread and juice is to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would now enable us to know that, to believe that, to receive that. So please set apart this bread and this juice in such a way that we'll know that we are in the very presence of Jesus, that our gaze would be upon him and we would realize that he persevered and thus this very one who persevered for joy lives in us and will be with us so that we too can persevere for joy and do good. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.